Welcome to Meet the Church. This is a podcast from Providence Church in Austin, Texas, featuring a new person each week from our congregation. This week, we're going to do something a little different and bring in a special guest. I'm Will Walker, and I have the privilege of introducing you to Josh Guerrero, who is the pastor of a new church in Southeast Austin called Refuge Community Church. Some of you have heard Josh share about Refuge, but I thought it would be fun for us to get to know him more personally. So in this episode, we talk about Josh's spiritual journey, issues of race and segregation in our city, and the beauty we can find in other cultures. We are here with Josh Guerrero, pastor of Refuge Church in Austin. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Well, what's up? I'm doing great. Uh, Josh and I have been talking all kinds of things already this morning, um, but let's start with uh, Refuge Church. A lot of our church knows you. You've been to a couple of our member meetings. You've told us a little bit, but for everybody else, catch us up. What are you doing right now in church planting? Uh, yeah, man. So Refuge, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming, as you mentioned, a lot of the folks at uh at Providence, I already know what's up with Refuge Church Plant, Southeast Austin. Uh, obviously, pandemic kind of throw everything out of whack. And so right now, we've been serving the community a lot. We've been delivering groceries. We've been doing a lot of great stuff like that, which has kind of been uh, really great. One of the things that we've kind of had in, in terms of like our our uh, narrative, some of the things that we've been, been saying in reference to COVID is really that we always said, hey, we want to be a church that serves our community. And then COVID kind of put our feet to the fire. I was like, so, so, so you're going to do that? Is that, is that, so you, you still about that, right? And it was like, yeah, no, we're still about it. And so that's kind of been the primary thing we took a step toward. And, and, uh, and it's been really great, man. It's been a blessing now that as we, uh, as some of the stuff here locally is not that bad in terms of COVID, we're starting to uh, plan out some outdoor events and starting to try to get towards some some spaces where we can do public gatherings and invite our community out to those gatherings. That's kind of in the works, like in our pipeline right now. Um, all of it kind of with the aim of like, how can we move the ball down the field to publicly launch the church sooner rather than later? So you you planted out of the well church. Tell us how you got connected to the well, what that residency was like and, and their sending of you. So yeah, we ended up coming back home to Austin and we went and checked out the well. We checked out the well. It was not what the well is now, right? I visited the well. It was like 180, maybe 150 people during that time. This was er, this was like mid-2017. Uh, you about to I, tell me that you're the reason for their expansive growth? I'm 100%. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> um, but it, it was not. But it just was before the growth started, right? And so when I went, it was fun because they were like, hey, if anybody wants to come pray, you know, now we, if Tori's like, hey, uh, if you want prayer, I'll be up here in the front. It's like a line of people to go see Tori. You know, at that time, they were like, yeah, we're going to say amen. And uh, if you want some prayer, so Tori was just standing there and nobody was trying to talk to that man. See, so I was like beeline. I was like, let me just go talk to this dude. He's, you know, he's planted a church. Went and talked to him. Um, months went by. Months went by after that, right? No contact with him, no nothing. And then we got kind of commissioned to, to go out and start thinking about church planting. And one of the first things was thinking about fundraising. 
And so um, growing up, I was not, I don't come from a rich context, even like a middle class context. So the thought of like going and just talking to a bunch of people that you grew up with was not an option for me. And so I started just calling churches that I knew and I thought about Tori. And so I called Tori was like, hey, man, I uh, would love to, uh, you know, connect, link up. I'm trying to plant a church. And he was like, yeah, man, I got like 30, 45 minutes because in his mind, he was like, this guy's trying to get money and tips. And he's not wrong because I was definitely 100% trying to get money and tips. And he was never going to see me again if he gave me that money. Now I'm just playing. But um, after that, we connected. And then like what should have been 30 minutes turned into like three hours of us just like hanging out and talking and um, and laughing. And, and really, even in that moment, I just felt like, oh, man, this guy is going to be like one of my boys for life. And um, sure enough, I mean, like he's one of my boys to this day. And so going into the residency program, he invited uh, me to apply for it, applied for it, went through that uh a strenuous application process and interview process. Uh, and then we got invited to, uh, for the role there at the, the residency. And it was a lot of fun. It, it really just was us taking care, like us being on staff, like as one of the pastors on staff for that first year. And the second year was, was partly that and partly thinking through church planting and, and thinking through vision and, um, raising money and then, uh, building a team from there at the well. And then they sent us off right late, uh, 20, um, late 2019, uh, to, to start building up the core team and the culture and being a part kind of functioning as like an early stage church plant together. And then it's been a lot of fun. So yeah, that's kind of everything in a nutshell. Yeah. How did you even, uh, get interested in church planting? Like what is the sort of short version of your calling to that? Um, so when I came to faith, I, I, um, I had a, a high, uh, appetite for reading um and just like my appetite for reading was 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 just kind of going crazy when i came to faith so i just read through the bible bro like i opened the bible and was like i'm just gonna read this bad boy uh i was uh minoring in philosophy at the time and so it was already a huge part of my life to be searching for what i would describe during that time as wisdom from people in order to make sense of the world. And so when I approached the scriptures after coming to faith, I already kind of, I knew the gospel because of my, my father, he pastored for many years, great gospel preacher. So I knew the gospel really well, but the worldview of scripture is a thing that I didn't have. So I just started reading the Bible like crazy. And one of the things I picked up real, real early was like, I think the response that people have in scripture to coming to Jesus is like, they start telling other people about this Jesus. It seems like a very natural response in the new Testament. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to go start telling people about Jesus. So I just went crazy, bro. I just went wild. I put like this, you know, arbitrary quota on myself of like 25 people a day to talk to about the faith. So I was just running around the Texas state university campus, just like, Hey man, can I pray for you? And people would like expletive off and it, okay okay that's cool uh and this, i just you know just move on to the next one bro let's just keep it moving and so um but does that it, person count that person would have counted right it was like it was like hey you know what i don't care how many expletive offs i get today if i get 25 straight i'm gonna be like you know what the lord just wanted me to know that he he loves me and i don't got to worry about this today so that's what it was you know that type of thing um and ended up me and I was hanging out with with one of my homegirls in the quad and we saw this one young woman she was uh coming uh just walking down the 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 quad there and um I figured like all right I'm with my homegirl so I'm just gonna you know reach out to this girl and say hey how, you know can I pray for you x y and z so we started praying for her and then she ended up coming to faith that day which was really really cool and um she 
ended up like coming to faith in like a dramatic way, right? Like, so the, she's like crying in the literature building there at Texas State, like six, seven hundred kids around her. She don't care. She's like crying as we pray for. Her. She goes to Walmart, buys a Bible because she's like, I don't know where to get a Bible. Walmart has everything. And um, it ended up being really neat, man. Like she ended up reaching out to me a lot and to my my friend to disciple her and to kind of read the Bible with her. And I'll be honest, I was just like, I don't have time for this. And so um, it, it was it was that very immature response because I was looking at my quota, bro. I needed to meet my quota. I was already not going to class very much. So I, I really was like, I don't got time to add this in with everything else and meet my quota. So um, so anyway, we, we got the... Uh, I ended up kind of just like ignoring her to the, to the point where it felt like she started trying to avoid and ignore me anytime I saw her. And it just pierced my heart, man. And I was in Ephesians four during that time where it has like the, um, the fivefold ministry type thing. And, and then it says that those people were given to equip the, the saints for the work of ministry. And right after that, it says, so that we may grow into a maturity that's measured by the fullness of Christ. Right. And when I read that during that season, it just pierced my heart. And uh, and all of a sudden, it just my whole world changed to where I was focused on discipleship, this focused on shepherding, focused on seeing people grow, focused on uh, seeing people uh, grow into a maturity that looks more like Jesus. And so from there, that's kind of when I just went to our, our pastor at the church that I was attending at the time. I was like, hey, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to spend my time doing. He got me plugged in. I eventually came on staff there and then it, it increasingly became evident in my heart and then uh at the same time in his heart and mind like i think you need to to pastor and plant a church potentially if that's what you want to do and so then when i came to him and said hey i want to do this he was like yeah bro i've been thinking that for like a hot minute now so um so yeah let's get you on that on that road that's a good segue i wanted to ask you about um how did you come into a personal relationship with god i i grew up knowing the gospel really well as i mentioned to you before we got started uh, my dad was a great gospel preacher, so he pastored for many years, uh, and, and so he actually just preached the gospel extremely well. So I knew the gospel, um, but it was that it was when I was right around uh, seventeen, uh, and I would say that I maybe even had some type of relationship with Jesus when I was early in my early teenage years. But uh, like any relationship that that in a 13 year old has it's going to be shallow right like you have that 13 year old girlfriend and uh when you're 13 you're in love with her and then you're magically in love with someone else the next week right like it, it's that it's that same type of shallowness that i felt like i brought to any type of relationship i had with with god and uh when i was 17 or 18 uh i actually had like a girlfriend break up with me and it started this uh this whole like downward spiral like right like if if you're 18 listening to this and you have some type of breakup. I just want to tell you, it's not the end of the world, sir. It's not the end of the world, ma'am. But as 18, you can't see that. And so I was like, it's the end of the world. So I got really heavy into drug use. I was pursuing music during that time. And it kind of was just really accessible to, with a lot of my musician friends to find um, drugs. And so I got really heavy into drug use. And it started like a two-year just binge on stuff. Like it was like, you know, just consuming, uh, you know, primarily you know, uh, marijuana. I'm trying to be like real politically correct. I don't want to use any slang. This one's like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Um, so, and that turned into like smoking like eight times a day, like eight, nine times a day, just consistently all day from 7 a.m. to 12 a.m. just high. And um, it was so empty, man. 
like everything I pursued during that time was so empty, whether it was drugs, whether it was philosophy at school, whether it was music, whether it was girls, no matter what it was, it was so empty. And there's that Charles Spurgeon quote that says, sometimes you have to know the emptiness of everything, or, or sometimes you only know the fullness of Christ when you know the emptiness of everything but Christ, right? And um, that was kind of that season for me, 18 to 20. I just learned the emptiness of everything that wasn't Jesus. And so when I turned to uh, really just with a heart full of burdens, I literally just one day was like, man, I need help. And I don't really know where to go with this. So I just started praying. And all of a sudden it was like, you know what? Uh, my heart just was lifted. Like the Holy Spirit just worked in my heart. I went from smoking eight or nine times a day to that afternoon, just not smoking anymore. Um, and the Lord just did a good work in my heart. And, uh, at that point I just knew like, I'm gonna follow this Jesus for the rest of my life. Yeah. All right. Take me back. You grew up in East Austin, Southeast Austin. Uh, I, well, I grew up, uh, I think the Austin area at large, right? So I was born downtown. My family originally from back in the day is, was from East Austin. So like before, um, now with like gentrification, it's like a little hard to see those lines now. But back in the day, it was like east of the river was black and Hispanic. North of 7th Street was black. South of 7th Street was Hispanic, was Latino, whatever. And um, and so as a result, like that's where all the communities were. That's where all. So that's where my family is from. And then from there, once kind of the, we, we moved out of there, it, everybody just spread out, right? So some people lived in Kyle, some people lived in Buda, some people lived in far Southeast Austin, some people lived in Del Valley. And I kind of was just like my, 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 me and, and my family, like my mom and dad kind of just bounced around from all those different areas. Um, and so, yeah, I've had family in Dove Springs, family on Montopolis, family in Del Valley, family in Kyle. So it's just kind of being around all those different spaces. If you could picture like, a Southeast Austin or a South Austin native Lockhart. Uh, that's kind of a little bit farther out. Um, but just where I just spent all my time. So yeah, I got a deep affection for all of South Austin, specifically the Southeastern portion of Austin for sure. Hey man, I want to talk a little bit about just racial tensions. Uh, for sure. Nationally, but even just locally, I'd like to just talk about your experience of that in Austin and just people in your neighborhood, your family, how you interact. I mean, you interact with a lot of different people in the city. What's been your experience over the last year or so? Man, brother, it's it's honestly, I feel like um, you know, I, I it regardless of what your political stance is, I don't say this is any type of advocation for anyone, but I, I really enjoyed um the way Delia Garza, she was uh mayor pro tem and the district two uh district two city council uh member uh prior to this upcoming election. And when a lot of the things happened this past uh, summer with Mike Ramos, that, that deal. Uh, she had a great quote that said, it seems like a lot of people are just now catching up to, uh, what black and Brown communities in Austin have known for a long time. And I think that's the only way I could express what it's felt like in this past year. I think that, uh, the conversation is more, is more vivid in this time, right? Obviously people are talking about it more, uh, for good reason. People have, um, conversations about it they're having these these convictions about justice all those things are very good yet uh i think it would be really it would be necessary to say that because these things are, are being talked about now isn't when these things have started right like these things have been going on for a long time uh in communities of color specifically black communities specifically hispanic latino communities these have been things that have been happening for a long time and so in in my experience what you could what you can put together in like, oh, this past year we've seen so much. It, it, for someone in in communities that are that are 
that are black, that are Hispanic, that are lower income oftentimes, you're like, no, this summer hasn't necessarily been more of something that has, it's not unprecedented. It's actually the, it's actually what's been happening, right? I remember when I was 16 years old, uh, and this is someone that's not mentioned in Austin at all, because in Austin, it, this is before everybody started moving. This is before Austin was like a sexy place to move, you know? Um, Daniel Rocha, when I was 16 years old, was shot on William Cannon, near William Cannon and, and Pleasant Valley. And he was right around my age. If I was 16, I think he was about 18. And um, the cops were like, hey, you know, like he, he charged me. And a bunch of other people in the community were like, no, that dude was like on his knees with his back turned. And his hand might have moved a little bit. And then they, they blew him up, right? And I remember during that time, my mom just like being so worried every moment, right? Like every moment was just like, a, you know, be careful if the cops stop you, be safe. You know, like those type of conversations are conversations that happen in our communities, not because it's like a, a theory, not because it's a um, conspiracy theory like that, but rather because you see the things happen in your own community, not necessarily saying they happen on the news and not blowing out a portion, but because this guy got shot when I was 16 roughly a mile and a half from where I live right now. Right. And my, my almost got shot from about two miles from where I live right now. And so this idea of finding yourself at a bad spot, right. In the wrong place at the wrong time, not having necessarily anything that you've done wrong, but experiencing police brutality is something that's been a very real conversation. I'm glad that it's being brought up so much more nowadays. I'm glad that it's a conversation within the bigger culture uh, where people are feeling convicted about a desire to seek justice, a desire to see these things happen, uh, see change and reform. I'm excited about that. I think it's a very good and real thing that's necessary. I mean, Austin is a very segregated city just based on Word. where communities live. Um, give me some thoughts about that. How, you know, how does your community relate to the rest of the city? Bro, that's such a heavy question. I feel like I feel like um, it's such a heavy question. I feel like we could spend the next like 30 minutes talking about that alone, right? Um, one of the biggest things that happens in segregation is segregation oftentimes, and it's intention, right? It's intention from the very beginning was to get like an out of sight, out of mind type of position to specific people. And I think that that still applies today. If you talk about, if you talk to people in my community, which is a predominantly... Latino community uh, with a a, a really a, a large black population and then uh, white population as well. There's some some uh, Asian folks here as well, but the primarily thinking about Hispanic and black communities. A lot of those those communities feel like this is a forgotten area in our city, right? Um, as an example, there was when I when I came to to start thinking about planting in this area, it was pretty early on, but when I went and looked up statistics, there was 4.5 churches per 10,000 residents here when we planted. That would mean each church would have to be more than 2,000 people uh, to reach everybody in its community. Those numbers are way below like the averages for not just Texas, but like Austin. If you think about Austin, there's there's a decent amount of churches in Austin. There And then when we would go and like have meetings with other churches, all of us were very like small new churches, not even new churches. All of us were like smaller churches. So even just the the effort to do ministry work in a community like ours has been very low historically. And I think a lot of that is due to the idea of segregation. When you when you segregate communities in a specific areas, you intentionally say that I want to kind of get you out of sight so that I can get you out of mind. Um, 
And, and that sense of forgottenness, I think, is felt by a lot of people here, whether it's from roads, whether it's from infrastructure, whether it's from uh, public transportation, which even like with Prop A, as good as it is, it doesn't impact our community as much as I think as, as it should. Um, especially with the amount of people that use public transportation in our community. I ride the prior, you know, prior to the pandemic, I rode the bus probably three to four times a week uh, just to get around and get amongst people and, and talk to people and stuff like that. It, I mean, like, bro, in the morning when you hop on the bus at 730, it's like standing room only here. You know what I mean? It, it's it, people use the bus here. Um, and so I, I, I say all that to say that I think that it, it's almost it doesn't injustice uh, to the church, if if that makes sense. Uh, we we almost experience what, as a consequence of what our culture, the sin of our our world and our systems, uh, what they impose on us, it ends up causing us to, I think, be afflicted in some ways as the church because we actually don't end up getting to engage culturally other communities as much as we could. You see what I'm saying? Because we're doing ministry in a segregated context, we lose out on not just the idea of ethnic diversity, but we lose out on the cultural dynamics of diversity that are meant to make our expressions of the gospel beautiful in order to see more people come to faith, right? The, the church should be diverse and increasingly maybe more so diverse than the world because we are meant to be a place of refuge for every type of, of language, skin color, hair texture to be brought in and, and help help. To, to understand uh, that the gospel is is a redemptive work for you, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are. Um, when we are not experiencing diversity ethnically, culturally, in age, right? Like in terms of people from different age groups, we uh, kind of are handicapped in the ability to do that. Uh, I think segregation actually hurts our, our mission in a lot of ways. It's something that we should be thinking about as church communities, not just for the sake of justice, obviously for that sake as well, but also because we we have a mission as a church to see the gospel spread and to see the kingdom expand. And diversity only serves to, to positively do that, to, to help us with that. You've mixed it up in a number of different church cultures. Tell me some things about the Latino culture. What are some ways that uh, that community gives expression to the gospel uniquely? I mean, what are some of the beautiful things there? Yeah, man. I, uh, I, one of my favorite books, bro, is a book called Manana by a man named Justo Gonzalez. He wrote some church history books, right? Yeah, bro. Yeah, bro. He's a I beast on the church history. Yeah, dude. Come those. on. So those are, th that's how he's probably like most widely known is his church history one and two books. They're red and blue. The old school editions, the new school we may look different. I've got them right here. Yeah, bro. Uh, but you know, I think what's, what's a great, uh, and this could be a great example, I should say, of of where like the where the cutoff is. It's like that Hispanic guy writes really good church history. All of his other books are about being Hispanic, and no one can name any of those other books. <laughs> and no one guilty. can name any of those other books. Guilty, guilty. Um, so one of his one of I think his all time great books is a book called Manana, and it's a book about theology and the perspective of God and the Christian church uh, through the lens of Latinos and. One of the things he actually talks about in that book is uh, that that struggling to reach Latino people, uh, it has not a lot of people have often said it's because of like language. And obviously, for some people, that's true. Uh, some people think it's like a, a cultural thing. Sometimes that's true. But one of the things he he points out the most is that there's oftentimes a lack of tangible, almost material viewer or, or, or perception of the gospel, 
right? That that when we sit in our churches and we preach the gospel in ways that is almost singularly theoretical, almost singularly, um, not even just spiritual, but I would say when we think about the ideologies, the worldviews, when those become the emphasis of our ministry and the hands and feet of Jesus don't become the emphasis of our ministries, you lose people um, who who need to feel that and see that because they have concerns and burdens that at, at the moment you speak to them, supersede their spiritual burden in their perception, right? Uh, in their perception, they have material needs that are in front of them that they need met in order to then be able to understand and think through more specifically uh, salvation and their spiritual need. And uh, I think this is just ultra true, man. This is ultra true in um, Latino culture. And we think about when you go to a, a Hispanic church, specifically a, a Spanish speaking uh, church, there are songs of great desperation that are linked to calling and leaning on God in ways that I don't hear in in like white evangelical. We'll use that term. I know some people don't like that, but uh, you don't hear that, right? Uh, there's a song called Levanto Mis Manos um, Cuando Tengo Mil Problemas. Um, yeah, it, it's a song all about raising your hands when you have a thousand problems. Um, ooh, sorry, I might start crying just thinking about that much. Um, there's songs that are filled with this sense of desperation because of the context. You think about, um, I, I ended a sermon one time here at Refuge um, with one of the congregational chants in, in Hispanic churches when uh when when they say quien vive and everybody uh says Cristo y a su nombre and to his name Gloria glory uh, y a nosotros and to us la victoria the victory there's these aspects these ideas of hope and what the gospel actually means for us and what it means in terms of the hope we have beyond what 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 this world is going to tell us these are the dynamics I think in in Latino churches that are so prevalent oftentimes that. It's hard oftentimes to transfer from that context to a context where you're not really talking about the hope you have for right now, this moment, right? With the hope you have for this exact space when you're struggling to pay bills, you're struggling to do X, Y, and Z, you know, whatever the case is, you're thinking about your family potentially back home in another country that you want to provide for. These are the things that are on your mind, right? Um, and, and someone is talking about the theological outworkings of sanctification. And you're like, bro, I, I, I know this is important, but there is a million things on my mind right now. And, uh, and, and those are the things that are clouding my, my ability to really internalize what you're saying. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things in Hispanic churches, man, is that idea of hope right now, tangible material hope that the gospel brings to us for this moment. That it, oftentimes, yeah, it's not going to necessarily give you a. The Lord isn't isn't mailing out checks from heaven to your to your mailbox. That ain't happening. The Lord does miraculous things sometimes, but man, He the gospel does give us hope for today, for right now. Um, that is extremely important in communities like mine. So good, bro. I'm not gonna lie, that got me pumped up, bro. That got me like I I, I had to stop myself from talking more because I wanted to keep going like hardcore. I'm gonna stop. But uh, that that's one of my favorite aspects of my community's churches, bro. Like Hispanic and Latino churches, um, they, God, they do it so well. It leaves you so hopeful. It proves the point of what you were saying earlier about how we need each other's cultures. A hundred percent. Because even just as you were talking, I identify with that. and It, it made me want to feel mm. more need. I wanted to feel more needy, which is how what the gospel, the gospel comes to the needy. The grace goes downhill, you know? Come on. And uh, 
just hearing you talk about it, I, I felt that. And that, that's a beautiful example of how if we could just experience each other's cultures, the Come gospel on, would become bigger to us. That's so good, Will. Golly, bro, that's so good. I, I had never connected that. I said the two things and you connect. <laughs> but, bro, that is 100% true. Because, I mean, like, I 100% agree that, like, like me and you both come out of a more, like, reformed tradition theologically. I 100% feel like that is more needed in, in the Hispanic community. Yet, uh, it, it's oftentimes easy to forget that the other side, the inverse side is also true, right? That That to see if you would... Bro, you would be mad uncomfortable, but you would leave almost wanting and wishing to feel what some of these people felt when I was growing up and we'd be in church and people would be crying out for God, right? On, on Sundays, there are people in these churches that are there on their knees giving everything because they because th that's all they have to give in that moment is getting on their knees and crying out to the Lord. Uh, it's beautiful, bro. It's beautiful. What an awesome picture of gathered worship that is. The beautiful thing that in that is that it means that the cultural expressions that come from all these different cultures in worshiping God are effectively good, right? Meaning they've all come from people that were made in God's image. So, so the Hispanic people that are crying out for God, that you know are, are jumping up and down, that's going to be present in glory. It ain't all going to be um, come thou found, right? <laughs> Wait, what is not come thou found on loop? <laughs> I mean, but but I think sometimes it's easy for us to, to think like, okay, glory means that like, like right, glory, heaven, this idea is actually the idea that uh, we're going to go and everyone's going to be conformed to what our version of worship is because we think we have the lock. We've unlocked the key, unlocked the lock, I mean, of, uh, of what worshiping Jesus should actually look like. And so everything's going to be Shane and Shane in heaven, right? Because they've figured it out. And I love Shane and Shane, bro. Like, I love Shane and Shane. Hey, they've the got reality... enough albums out to last for you. <laughs> they could pull um, it off if they need to. Worship Volume 85, I think, just hit the stores or whatever that, whatever their, their worship collective thing is. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you think you have the lock, right? You think you've unlocked the master key to worship in your culture. And so other people should come and, and worship like your culture. They should read the Bible like your culture. They should sing like your culture. They should see the world like your culture. And they should X, Y, and Z. Um, when all these different cultures are, are created by people that were made in God's image, they are equally valuable, equal in dignity, equal in, in, in their worth before the Lord. To the point that in glory, when all the cultures come together, right, they're going to be there worshiping, crying out to God next to you as your arms are crossed listening to come now found. No, I'm just playing. I'm just kidding. But, um, but like 100%, right? There, there will be something different there and, and it will be encouraging and it will be fun. And um, it, is, it is a shame that that's not more prevalent in our church communities now, right? Um, anyway, yep. Oh, Lord, let it be so. That's right, brother. That's right. That's, but but to be fair, I know that we have people working at that, right? I I, I don't want to I don't want to end on that bad note. I think that right, like even us having this conversation is a great step toward those ideas, right? Like even me saying the things I'm saying, um, it, it, people in Providence, and it's not that anyone with that perception is a bad person, right? Anyone that that's thinking like, come thou fount is the epitome of word. I don't know why I keep it. I love come thou fount. By the way, I just you it just hate, happened to be you hate come thou fount. <laughs> um. 
I, it's like one of three songs I sing to my daughter like almost every night when I'm putting her to sleep, but it's just the one that's on my mind right now. Um, and it's not that anyone that believes those things is a bad person or that it's just that that's the world we live in. It's the, it's the persuasion of uh, the system of the world that begins to make us think that, um, that our culture, who we are, is more valuable than other people right? It's not a bad thing. Meaning they're not bad people. It's just that something like what you're doing, letting me just talk, right? Letting me just talk about this. There may be people in Providence that feel that way, but just having that one voice that says, Hey, I don't think that's not true. Um, is a huge step. No, man, I, I love listening and talking with you. Um, always have, this is why I wanted to do this conversation. I wanted our people to get to know, uh, the Josh that I've gotten to know. I remember when we first met, we were just cutting up and it was all goofy. Mm -hmm. It was like that for about a year. And then I was like, Hey, this guy's planting a church and I want to, I want to be a part of that with him or support him, but I need to figure out if he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> so we had, what is it? Where's that place? We had lunch down off of old Torf, I think. Uh, yeah, bro. Tarboos. Tarboos. Yeah. So when we went down there, you didn't know this was the test. I was like, I'm going to ask this brother some serious questions and see if he knows what he's talking about. And you do. You just blew me away. It wasn't long till I didn't know what you were talking about. Uh, <laughs> and I just appreciate I'm, the exaggeration. Man, no, I mean, just your ability to hang and talk to anybody and cut up, but then to switch gears and to talk theology, culture, um, whatever you want. I mean, you're just so articulate and so charismatic in such a good way. And every time you've spoken to our church, that's everybody loves it. Everybody's like, hey, wh what time do they meet? How do I get there? Uh, we're gonna if if Providence ever dissolves, it's gonna be because everybody went to refuge. And you know what? You'll hire me, I guess, on that day. Uh, you know, you know, brother, my face is real hot right now. I, uh, I I'm not sure if that's from blushing or because I'm sitting in a closet. But uh, either way, <laughs> but either way, I appreciate you. I've always appreciated you. Um, yeah, Providence, y'all got a good one. Um, shout out to to Providence, man. Yeah, like y'all y'all understand. Yeah, Will has been. Um, Almost like you're almost like the relationship I'm starting to feel towards you, bro. is almost like a low key mentor type vibe because I call you for random things. And like you have yet to be like you have yet to be like, I don't got time for this. You like always pick up the phone, bro. Dang, y'all might cry. Um, I just appreciate you, dog. Like I appreciate you for real, man. I think that having people like you in the life of someone like me, who's I mean, planting a church is hard. I don't I, there are there is. Anyone, anyone that is worth their salt can tell you that planting a church, you run into situation or situation where you have no idea what to do. And you need someone that's been there to be like, hey, what about this? Think about this. Right. You have been one of those people. And that's just consistently open to, to lending, to listening, to lending your voice and your thoughts. So I appreciate you deeply, brother. Oh, man. Well, I, I feel like it's an honor just that you let me be a part some small way what y'all are doing i love it um and may god bring more of it to our city amen same to providence y'all doing amazing and I, I appreciate uh being able to, to hang we're gonna sing come now fount this week for sure <laughs> i'm gonna request it <laughs> that's good bro that's good i love come out man i'm never gonna live that down bro i that's <laughs> hey let's end with this man i need you to tell me um Best movies. Give me top three best Ooh. movies all time oh for you. Oh, my gosh. I know you're a movie guy. Oh, my gosh.
No, this is the hardest thing. You're having a crisis of faith right now. Oh my gosh, dude. Oh man, bro, I'm shook, bro. Like I am shook because I feel like I've watched a couple of movies recently that have really um Yeah, let's start shaken up. What are a couple of movies recently? Because everybody's looking for something to watch right now. Uh bro, so I revisited say see, I'm gonna get real geeky here for like 10 seconds and bear with me. Uh I rewatched Pan's Labyrinth recently. Uh Guillermo del Toro, uh, famous Mexican director. Uh, it's a Spanish movie, not just in, in terms of language, but in, in country of origin. And so you're going to need to read them subtitles. But it's such a fun movie, bro, because at the end, it, it gives you a choice to make regarding how you see the world. And uh, that and through the movie, there's there's not one way that the director tells you it needs to go. He gives you clues that will affirm your position no matter how you see it. And uh, and so it really is. He really he did an interview saying, like, I, I want it to be up to you. It's brilliantly done, bro. It is just rewatching it and then seeing it as an adult. I think, you know, with with a different perception on the world and experiencing a little bit more hardship and then thinking about it with a different point of view. I was like I was at a crisis of faith to the point that I was like, wow, I'm, I'm making a tough decision right now. All right, man. Thanks so much for. Taking some time, sharing with our church. Uh, we love you guys. Happy, happy for you. Happy to be a part in a small way of what you're doing. Yeah, man. Love you too. Thanks for listening to Meet the Church. Join us next week for another interview with one of our church members. Also, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, I put all the spice on it. Guerrero? The, that's not right. So, um, <laughs> so you don't wet wet. It's it's actually like pretty hard because it, there has to be an accent on the U for it to be the wet sound. So when the accent is on the U, oh man, my wife came through clutch, bro. That's the coffee. There you go. Ooh, thank you, thank you, love. To get the wet sound out of there. So when you don't have it, like like guerra is a is a great example, right? Guerra means war. Um, so without the accent, it's just the get get sound. So guerrero. Say that again. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Uh, ge ge. If you can try to get like a little, a little, almost like a little W sound on there, but not much, like ge guerre guerre guerrero. And then it's a hard R. It's a hard roll on the first because it's two R's, and then a, a, a soft roll on the back because it's one R. So Guerrero. Okay. So how how does like a white guy say it? So here's my, how my wife does it, right? Because you gotta remember my wife, blonde hair, blue eyed lady. She uh she says Guerrero. <laughs> it's a dynamically different name. <laughs> it's almost an insult. <laughs> Um, and what like you, can't, you funny, can't just you can't just say my name however you want, you know it's Walker. It's hard. It's hard. Uh, that's true. That's one hundred percent true. Uh, I go just saying. Um, but I, I could, but you know, I, I probably got some distant family members that could be like Walker, Walker, <laughs> Walker. So I, it's give and take, man. But yeah, so it it's a harder name to pronounce, and that's at like the Guerrero is like. At the at the upper end okay. of like this is how you say it. Give me but a couple like, tries. Give me a couple tries. All right, go for it. Guerrero. That's pretty good. No, that's Guerrero. really good. Like Guerrero. that's almost that's almost as like the best that I've heard someone give it a try that 
didn't like have some type of relationship with Spanish, right? Like I was just introducing you to a friend and said, Hey, this is Josh get it I mean, it would sound like I was going into a different thing. I, I, yeah. I, I would, I would personally be like, no, nah, bro, just say, Guerrero. <laughs> this is Josh. I would like, Guerrero. Just say Guerrero, bro. Just say Guerrero. You're all right. Guerrero. 